0: Hey you, yeah you, if you or someone you know is struggling with anything mentioned on today's program, please, 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 please. email me at authentic1 at gmail.com. That's a-u-t-h-e-n-i-c-k the number one at gmail.com. I am available 24-7, 365 to help in any way that I can. I have resources, I have open ears, an open heart, and tons of hope. I've been freely given all these things and would love to give them to you. Be good to yourselves and each other. Follow me on Twitter using the handle at Authentic and my dog Marla on Instagram at DJMarla.Gene. Before we get started today, I would like to tell you that suicide... Is mentioned multiple times in this episode, if you or someone you know is going to be triggered by that, or you're struggling with suicidal ideation, or you have a plan to commit suicide, please reach out. Speak with a counselor today at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Their number is one 800 273 8255. That's 1 800 Alcoholics Anonymous or AA will also be mentioned multiple times during this episode. The expressed views and opinions by the interviewee do not reflect AA as a whole. Please enjoy. <laughs>
1: I, I can't get these memories out of my mind. And some kind of madness has started to evolve Welcome, welcome,
0: welcome, to the show. My name is Nicholas Thomas Fitzsimmons Vanden Hable, but most people just call me Nick. And this is my show. Authentic. Get it? Instead of authentic, it's authentic. I put Nick in the place of Tick. Okay, that might go over somebody's head. Anyway, with me as always is my dog Marla. Marla!
1: Come here, baby. Say hello to all of our listeners. Yay.
0: She's a brick. House. Alright, that's that's enough, Marla. Go back to being a Mason. Anyway, here on Authentic, where we get authentic, we talk about all things recovery. What do I mean by that, all things recovery? Well, what I mean by that is if you are still living and breathing on this earth, you, yes, you are in recovery from something. As for myself, I am in recovery from alcoholism. I am an alcoholic. I'm also a drug addict. I'm a compulsive gambler. I have an eating disorder. I have bipolar disorder. Really? (sighs) The list could go on and on and on and on and on. Luckily for you, this show is not about me. It is about two people. First is my guest, Tim. Second is the one person whose life Tim is most certainly going to save here tonight. We are here to let you know that you are not alone. We are here to smash stigma. And we are here to provide solutions. Well, I think that's all I got, Tim. Without further ado, Tim, please introduce yourself, sir.
2: Hello, hello, I'm Tim, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Tim. I've been uh, dealing with, trying to manage my alcoholism for a long time. And in that regard, I haven't used any alcohol or other drugs since 1981, 39 years, almost 40 years. People will often say, wow, that's really wonderful. I say, it is truly wonderful. I am truly blessed, and I am dumb lucky. And I think another reality is that I have had several relapses. They just haven't involved alcohol and drugs. Primarily, they've involved my attitude. Where I see that is when I start thinking I can do it all myself and I don't need anybody else's help, I'm in deep trouble. I try to hold that thought and stay in touch with people whose judgment I trust and get their input As I go along, so I don't get carried away with myself all on my own, because that's trouble. Anyway.
0: Right on, Tim. Damn, (laughs) you are long-winded as fuck.
2: Yeah. I love it. No, it's perfect. Could be days.
0: You are great. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't have anything going on until like 6 a.m., so. Good. We'll be good. All right. We'll be good. We'll order in. Fair enough. What do you want? Fair enough. Um, Let's wait and think about it. Okay. I want Taco Bell. That could work. Oh, God, (laughs) that sounds terrible. Anyway, Tim, let's get right down to the nitty gritty. In the first segment, we talk about your experience. I'd like to get a picture of what made you and what allowed you to go to certain lengths, i.e. using alcohol and drugs, to deal with life because so many alcoholics and addicts talk about not being able to deal with life on life's terms. What was your childhood like growing up?
2: I grew up in a small town. I am the youngest of five. I have four older sisters, the oldest of whom died a couple of years ago, and the youngest of whom is six years older than me. So I was kind of like an only child. My parents were 42 and 46 when I was born. By the time I came along, they'd kind of had it with parenting. And so a couple of things, I truly believe I have been riding the crest of the wave of white male privilege my entire life. Very spoiled in many ways, which is something I dealt with badly later on. In any event, growing up, I think one of my first memories, and my, my parents were born in nineteen five and nineteen nine, so they were adults during the Depression. They got married in 1939 and bought a house for $3,500, and they never moved. They never uh, expanded the house. At one point, there were seven of us living there. My oldest sister was 19 when I was born, so she had moved out before I could remember. But tiny little house, two little bedrooms, tiny little bathroom. And in my memory, my parents never had their own room. They slept on a -a hide-a-bed in our den. Now, at the same time, my dad was a small-town lawyer, kind of a big fish in a small town. By the time he died, he owned several of the buildings in town. They'd never expanded the house. And and that was part of their ethos, I think, from the Depression stuff, is you don't do anything that's flashy. You don't do anything that's that's gaudy or sensational. And I think part of it, too, was he was the youngest of seven brothers. I think part of it was he wouldn't want to do anything to show up his older brothers. So that being said... My parents were both alcoholics. My mom, one of my first memories is my mom carrying me up to bed, so I must have been three, four, maybe even two, but I don't know that I would remember that. She was drunk, and she fell backwards down the stairs, and I bounced on the landing. I didn't know this till many years later, but she broke her collarbone, and she was in a lot of pain. But my dad wouldn't call the doctor because she was drunk, and we couldn't let anybody know like everybody didn't know. That was the kind of thing that, that went on. That kind of thing, my mom being drunk and loud. My dad drank just as much. He just got more rigid and quieter. Uh, Well, quieter as as he drank. A few nights a week, my mom would be kind of raging around the house drunk, kind of usually monologuing about somebody in her family who'd slighted somebody else 30 or 40 years earlier and how horrible that was. And I remember as a small boy listening to her and thinking, I need to listen really carefully so that I can explain to her that it's not really that big a deal, and she doesn't have to get so upset about it that and that was part of my experience
0: about what age
2: was that? Oh geez four, five, six, seven, eight, something like that.
0: so as a very young child, you are witnessing your alcoholic mother right in active alcoholism, yeah, and you as a four or five six seven eight year old you're trying to memorize the stuff that's that she's saying
2: right. Yeah, and say, you know, hey, it really isn't that big a deal. And if you ask them now, I don't think they'd really worry about it. And
0: to me, that so- fix it. to me, that sounds like you are trying to parent your mother at that point.
2: Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely.
0: Did that continue on through your childhood?
2: No. I remember another incident where one of my sisters, I was asking her to do something for me or asking her for some candy or something. And she said, go tell mom she's half drunk. And this is like... Saturday morning at eleven, and they're sitting around the kitchen table. And so I, so I went in and I said, "Mom's half drunk." Mom's half drunk. And then I ran to the other room and banged my shin, and of course jumped on my mother's lap for comfort and felt horribly, horrible shame about that. And it, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Things kind of flowed along till I was like ten or eleven. When I was eleven, when I was ten, I went to Catholic Youth Center Boys Camp. In northern Minnesota. And so the next summer when I was 11, I'd been planning on going again. And my parents were all set to go. And I was signed up. But I didn't want to go because my best friend was going to be moving away while I was gone at camp for 10 days. And I'd made this little league team. And it was really important me to be at the games. And I was going to miss a quarter of the season by being there. And I was horribly torn about it. One of my sisters said, if you do this for me, I'll tell Mom and Dad you don't want to go to camp. In any event, I don't think that ever happened. So in any event, I get to the camp, and I'm totally distraught. And so the second or third night, I sneak out, walk down the road, and hitchhiked. I was 11 years old. hitchhiked 19 miles into the nearest town, and I called home. (laughs) And my parents weren't home, and whatever sister was there called the next-door neighbor who called the cops, and they picked me up and took me back to camp you know, they talked to my parents and my parents said, oh, keep them there. I think however this stuff happens, I got this sense of abandonment. They're not there for me. I can't count on them. I think it really changed the way I saw the world. Instead of being kind of open to adventure and checking things out, I think I got a lot more scared about being out in the world and trying to explore the world. I think I really backed off from it. And over the next year or two, I really went into what I guess now I would see as some a pretty horrific, depress, depressive episode. I'd always been a great student and straight A's and like that, and I just quit studying in like 7th and 8th grade, 11, 12, 13. I would just sit in front of the TV every night and not do my homework. And my parents got mad, but they'd never really confronted me directly much. And I just kind of slid through. And I remember one of the teachers pulling me aside and this, is you know, small town Catholic school and saying, geez, you know, we, I, you're too smart. And, you know, maybe we let you study on your own and you can go ahead and like that. And I kind of did did it, but I didn't. And I remember thinking, if being like my parents is what you get by following the rules and doing things right, I don't want that. But I didn't know, I had no clue where to go. In eighth grade, it was expected that I was, I was going to have to go to Catholic school for ninth grade, and I was looking around at the various schools. I don't know even how I found out about it, but I took the entrance exam for St. John's Prep School in Collegeville, and somehow I figured out if I go there, I can reinvent myself, become my own person, and get away from my parents.
0: What kind of person did you want to become, Tim?
2: Well, I think what I recall is I wanted to be a great student so that I could Zoom through high school and Zoom through college and be really successful financially so that I'd be able to wall myself off from everybody and so nobody could fuck with me.
0: I really wanted to revisit something that you just said. You were talking about a depressive episode that you had. Yeah. And you talked about your thoughts around it and things of that nature. But I really want to know, how did that feel? Do you remember what sort of internal feelings you were having?
2: I remember... You know, now I would call it anhedonia. Nothing sounded fun. I didn't care. And I remember one time, I think I was 13, and my sisters were going on some ski trip for a weekend, and I was going to go. And I just went, I'm not going. And they go, come on, it's really going to be fun. And I've had a lot of fun on other trips like that, and I did after that. But I just said, I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going. I feel horrible. I don't want to pretend to have fun. I'm not going. You know, just that. I can't imagine things being better, and I don't want to pretend and forget it. I give up. That's where I I remember thinking about it.
0: Do you remember ever having any suicidal thoughts?
2: Not really. No, I I imagine it. Yeah, I don't know. Not anything. You know, I've learned a lot about that stuff since then. No, I don't remember that in particular. No.
0: Moving forward, you decided that you were going to reinvent yourself. Right. How did that go for you?
2: Well, so I got to school, got to St. John's Prep School. When I started, and I just... Decided I'm going to be the best student on the planet. I made a point of not making friends because I was just going to be go through the top. And from September when I started and December, I was like 10th in my class based on who knows what to second by Christmas time. And I continued that through the end of that first ninth grade year. And then that summer I came home and I was so self-conscious I, guess, I don't know whether word to call it. I was 15, could hardly leave the house the whole summer. I mean, my dad called somebody to get me onto a baseball team because I didn't have the gumption wherewithal to go to a tryout on my own.
0: Do you remember what you were self-conscious about? Was it your body? Was it
2: interactions with It was interactions just anybody's going to think I, it wasn't anything in particular. It was like couldn't be comfortable being around like other kids. Kids I'd hung out with the summer before, I just didn't even try it won't be okay, Uh, they'll think I'm, I I don't remember even thinking about it. I just remember I can't do it. I'm just going to stay in the house. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. that happened, that lasted the whole summer. And I remember thinking, wow, at school I was a star. And here I'm stuck in the house. This sucks. You know, at the same time, one of my sisters got married toward the end of that summer and i Got to go on a really cool trip with my oldest sister and her husband and kids. They took me, they lived in near San Francisco, and they took me on a trip with them across the Dakotas and Montana to Glacier Park and then down the West Coast back to their house. That was a wonderful thing. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, really helped me kind of feel good about myself. Went back to 10th grade, continued the same, you know, just solidly locked in. Then in January, so this is January of 1968, I was home for a weekend in, I think it was like Saturday night, and I woke up and I smelled smoke, and I went downstairs, and my mom had set the couch on fire with a cigarette. She was drunk. And my dad was there, and he got up, and I got up, and we carried dragged the couch outside, and we poured water on it to put it out. And I think we would have pretended like it didn't happen the next day, which is the kind of thing we normally did. But my, one of my, my youngest sister came home later that night and went, this is it. And she'd been leaving AA pamphlets around the house for my parents for some time before that, I found out later. So anyway, I got a ride back to school uh, that Sunday, I imagine, and then Monday or Tuesday one of the priests called me into his office and he said, hey, your sister's on your way to pick you up. And I said, what's up? And he goes, well, your, your dad's in the hospital. He had a massive heart attack, and he's at St. Mary's Hospital in Minneapolis, and your mom's at this place called Hazelden. And so it, and so it turned
0: out that— And what's Hazelden?
2: Uh, treatment center in Center City, Minnesota. So my sister picked me up, and what had happened was my sister went— to the only person in their small town who would have any leverage with my dad, who was the parish priest. And she said, here's what's going on. And he said, tell your dad to be in my office at three o'clock this afternoon or I'm coming to your house. (laughs) So somehow from there, my mom got to Hazelden, I suppose, Monday. And then Tuesday, my dad went to his office, which was Two blocks from our house at about 10:30 in the morning, he got up and he said, "I don't feel good. I'm going home," and collapsed on the floor with his massive heart attack. Luckily, he didn't make it home; he would have died probably. And ended up in the hospital, uh, where he was for quite a while recovering from the heart attack. Our family doctor told me later it was the worst heart attack he'd anybody see anybody survive. And this is 1968, so they don't have the kind of technology and know-how that they have now to deal with that stuff. And he quit drinking and smoking. Was probably the healthiest he'd been in. 30 years for a couple of years after that. But then his, his uh, arteries and stuff started falling apart and he died a few years later.
0: Did he ever pick up again or did he know, di- no. Did he I'm... die sober, do you think?
2: Oh, yeah. Not on purpose. I mean, he would sure. never say I, I was an alcoholic and I, I'm in recovery. It was like the doctor told me I can't drink and smoke, so I'm not drinking and smoking. And do you my...
0: remember what his demeanor was after that?
2: Great. Pretty much the same same guy, but not real different. Not real different. And in ways, we got closer. It was really kind of nice. For a while, yeah. So anyway, so that that was January, and then about March, the deal was: this the high school I went to had a has a program where they exchange students with a school in Austria. Because there's uh, St. John's is a Benedictine monastery, and they have a deal with this monastery in Austria. I was on the I was planning to go on that trip thing to Austria for 11th grade. And so in 10th grade, I tried out for the baseball team and I didn't make it. And I don't know if I would have made it anyway, but that was it. And that was a big deal to me. And it was like, geez, I'm never going to play baseball again. So this is like a month or two after my mom goes into Hazelden and my dad almost dies. And that's when I started drinking. And some other guys in the high school and I, it's on the same campus as St. John's University, and so we got some college guys to get us some beer. And I didn't realize it at the time, but later on I figured out, I blacked out the first time I drank.
0: Do you remember what your first beer was? You said your first drink was a beer, right? Yeah. Do you remember what it was?
2: What kind? Yeah. No.
0: No. Oh, yeah. it was a. that's one of my favorite questions to ask interesting. Because, because I remember mine. That's yeah,
2: interesting. Ugh. Yeah, it was a case out in the Somebody planted it out in the woods and we went out. And, <laughs> I remember feeling- Like a covert operation. Feeling kind of inadequate because I drank seven beers and I was totally wasted and threw up all over the place. First, well, first anyway. time
0: drinking you had seven beers.
2: And I, I was thinking, geez, what a lightweight. Yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> so that and that opened up a whole new world for me. So then all that self-consciousness and social anxiety, I guess you'd call it, was gone.
0: Before you blacked out that first time drinking, do you remember how it
2: felt? I remember it being really euphoric, really wonderful, really great. Yeah. Yeah.
0: A lot of alcoholics talk about the first time they get drunk. They talk about this term they use is, I finally felt as though I had arrived here I am, this is what I've been looking for all along. It sounds like in your case, it was just, ah.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I I guess looking for what I've been looking for all along in the sense of being freed from that social anxiety and am I good enough, am I fast enough, am I smart enough, blah, blah, blah. That definitely And I remember, you know, I continued on, obviously, after, you know, in that summer. And I remember one time being out, you know, in the sunshine at the beach and the sun and splitting headache from a hangover. And I went, God, this is wonderful, because it blew out the depressive stuff, the negative self-talk that was going on inside my head all the time. It blew that out for a while. And that was delightful. I remember that was just what a wonderful thing.
0: Do you think, and I'm pushing a little bit here, (laughs) Huh. that's what I do. Do you think that because of your parents' age and they were just kind of over parenting as you loosely yeah. put it earlier, do you think that directly contributed to your not feeling good enough, not having that sort of attention that you thought you quote unquote maybe
2: deserved? Boy, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't I that doesn't ring a bell as far as that goes. And I don't know that it was attention even I think I got plenty of attention. but They were kind of in their own world, too. You know, and I remember one of the things I think about, and I, I love my parents. I, I can't say I don't. But I remember thinking, I remember both of the compliments my dad gave me. Two? Two, yeah.
0: Do you rem- well, you <laughs> remember he gave you two, so what were they?
2: One was, I never struck out playing baseball. I almost never struck out. And he said, you got a good eye, walking home from a game one night. And the other one was I refinished my, my dad and my uncle in 1958 bought a 1956 Chris Craft cruiser. Years later, I guess, well, in the early 70s, before my dad died, I refinished it. And he said, wow, you did a great job refinishing it. And that I really stuck in my head. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Those feelings of not good enough. You think that <laughs> might be related to Could getting be. two Could. compliments? I'm not a psychologist. I don't claim to be one, but... <laughs> Could yeah, be no, I call it like I see could it and, and you got a good eye.
2: Could be, could be. Sport. <laughs> it's it's you know, and it's interesting too, because I'm you know, talking about this, you know, you mentioned stigma and telling tales out of school, you know, ratting out your parents, ratting out your family. That in a huge sense is what I think recovery is about. Down the road, we can talk about, you know, the but I think I sent you a note about something I have a idea I thought of about hitting bottom. One of the things, or here's something I remember, I don't know if you've ever seen any Father Martin videos, Catholic priest from way back and did all these videos about AA and recovery. And one of the things that really stuck with me from one of those is he said, I think the best definition of humility is stark honesty. No bullshit. This is who I am. Nothing to hide. It's all here on the table. I think that's pretty much impossible. It's it's impossible for me. I don't want anybody to know everything about me all the time. (laughs) I'm sure, no, I don't know, I I hope, I think probably nobody else does either. But I mean, telling these tales out of school, on the one hand, it's like breaking all the rules, you know, violating the family secrets and so on. And at the same time, I feel like it's necessary for me to face these things and throw them out there and say, this is how it was. It doesn't have to kill me. I don't have to have it run my life. I can be, I can grow beyond this stuff. I wouldn't be surprised. And part of what would keep me from saying this is somebody's going to say, you big fucking crybaby, what the hell's (laughs) the matter with you? You had, you were so fucking privileged. It's true. I was in so many ways. You know, at the same time, I've had to do a lot of work to have a life that I wanted to live out of what I grew up in, whether that's internal in me or outside forces or what, who knows? The end result is for me to be happy and have a like life that I like, which I do now, I've had to, I would say, confront some of this stuff, accept it as real, and decide to move on one way or the other. You know, and some of it I've really struggled to move on with. Some of it I'm sure I've not let go of yet. But that's the ongoing challenge is to see it for what it is, tell the truth about it, accept it, and say, this is who I am. This is what I've got to work with. This is what I'm doing with it.
0: In being in recovery and interviewing people on this show, there is one thing that I know for certain, and that is mental health issues, chemical dependency, compulsive behaviors do not discriminate. For sure. It doesn't matter your race, color, creed, socioeconomic status. It does not matter. Right. And I think that's oh, yeah, I think that's nice of you to say that you are a white male that had all the privileges in the world. Guess what? It doesn't fucking matter.
2: It doesn't protect you from it. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's not to say that people of certain socioeconomic statuses have access to more help. Right. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is the effect.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, I hear you. And I I agree completely. Tim, Absolutely. what did your
0: continued use look like?
2: During high school, I, you know, I drank on the weekends when I was home from school. I don't think I ever drank at school after that just because it was too hard. I would come home and drink with my friends,
0: sort of weekend warrior type stuff.
2: Yeah, definitely. Then during the summer carried on with it. And I think, you know, and again looking back, I'm thinking maybe it was probably tied in with, you know, Gotten diagnoses of bipolar disorder, and I want to pretend that's not real. But then I look and I go, yeah, it sure looks like bipolar disorder to me. I think kind of hypomanic behavior, and it's interesting. Long after high school, somebody said they talked to one of my teachers and said, "Did you know Tim?" And he said, "Yeah, you know the thing was, you never knew who you were gonna get. He could be great or he could be terrible." I'm guessing that was kind of the because I think when I get hypomanic and I start getting wound up, I I can be really obnoxious. <laughs> Lucky you got Marla to protect you. <laughs> so uh she'll rip your fucking throat out. I Tim. believe it. I believe it. Don't That's... you dare shank me. <laughs> I hear you. So yeah. So I think that was kind of because I never, I never felt like I kind of felt like I had friends, but I never really believed I had friends. I didn't believe that anybody would want to be my friend. I think
0: Tim, the way that you describe your childhood, growing up and, you know, moving through these stages of maturity, both mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you sound like you were pretty lonely. Yeah. You you sounded like a really lonely kid.
2: Huh. Yeah, I've never really thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Well,
0: when you talked about, obviously, looking back in hindsight, it's like, oh, yeah, I did struggle with some mental health stuff. Yeah. When I was a kid, I just couldn't label it. I couldn't sure. name it at the time. But when you talked about being in your family, being the youngest, sort of not having as much attention from your parents that maybe they paid to the older kids and then being reclusive and then deciding that you were going to be number one at school. And you said you said that you did not have any friends. Right. When you went to school, you did not have any friends. And then you came home for the summer and you didn't want to see anybody. So you we're all alone. And Tim, I'm very sorry that you went through that. Thanks. No one, no I've never one really
2: thought of it that way, but yeah, it makes a lot of sense.
0: No one should ever have to go through that, especially as a young child. Yeah. And I'm very sorry that you went through that.
2: Wow. Thanks. You're welcome. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah I never thought of it that way, but that's why I'm here because we can all learn and grow. We're learning If we together. open ourselves to it.
0: That's right. Stark honesty, Tim.
2: There you go. Let's, so
0: Let's continue with that stark honesty. <laughs> Fair enough.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. Talk to me about your boozing. Kept drinking through high school. And then 11th grade, I got to go to Austria. And you can anybody can drink in Austria. So drank when we could there in boarding school again. So not a whole lot of opportunity. Drank a lot there. Came back the next summer and was drinking a lot and that sort of thing. And then it was my senior year. And I was such a good student they set up this thing where i could do an independent study project first fall semester of my senior year so basically i hitchhiked home every weekend and screwed around and i did some i did some actual work on it i'm sure supposed to be looking at college and stuff oh well then yeah in january january so january 1970 on ski trip and my best friend at the time and i left the resort or you know the ski place where we were staying and hitchhiked into town wherever it was somewhere in wisconsin Got really drunk. I don't know how we got drunk. I think we were drinking at a bar. I don't know why they'd serve us. I remember being in the bar. Because it's
0: Wisconsin.
2: Well, there you go. (laughs) I remember being in the bar, and I remember probably being really obnoxious talking to the singer in the band. And then I remember walking out the back door and down some steps that were really icy, so I was being careful. And the next thing I remember is kind of coming to and thinking, oh, crap, I forgot to take out my hard contact lenses that I had at the time. And I sat up and opened my eyes, and I was in jail. So we were in jail. The next morning, they let us out, and uh, we hitchhiked back to the ski area. And the priest who was running the trip was like, you know, I, I've still, I've heard, I've heard from him within the last year, and he sounds like he's dying of ALS. He was like the most compassionate, one of the most compassionate people I've ever met. And he just said, so, you know, what happened, guys? And I think we thought about trying to tell him a story, and just said, we got arrested. We were in jail. So we got back. I was a whiz bang student, so they weren't gonna they, they were gonna suspend my friend and not suspend me. And I said, "That's bullshit." You know, if you gotta suspend us, suspend me too. So they did. I got home and my parents. I remember my mom saying, "Well, you know, the first time you drink, you lose control." You know, like that. And I said, "Mom, I've been drinking every weekend for the last three years," and like that. And that's when I actually told my parents. I like. I said, you know, this is such bullshit, and I feel so. I don't know what you'd call it, probably alone and so on and so forth, that I could kill myself. I said that. Smashed a chair. And we went and saw a therapist once. And my parents went in to talk to the therapist. And then I went in to talk to the therapist. And he said, Well, your mom's kinda in La Land over here and your dad's kind of seeing all the big buildings but not seeing the manhole open manhole in front of them and kind of thing. And I don't know what, what came of that. But anyway, I think that kind of scared my parents so that A few weeks later, I was too cool to watch the Super Bowl. The Vikings were playing in the Super Bowl, but I was too cool to watch the Super Bowl. So I was out on the ice on the lake near our house flying a kite, and my dad was watching the Super Bowl. And the phone rang, and it was a guy from New College in Sarasota, Florida. And I'd done really well on the um, National Merit Scholarship Test. And I wasn't a semifinalist, but pretty close. And so they called up and recruited, you know, said they wanted me to come to their college. And my dad said, "Uh, well, you didn't get that far. My dad said, hey, call back later. The Super Bowl's on. (laughs) Call back later. And they said, we'll let you start this spring quarter rather than finishing high school in Minnesota. So I went to the teachers at my high school and I said, what do you think? And they said. Yeah, you can do that, you know, send us some papers and do this kind of stuff. And they tried to talk me out of it because they said, you know, this place is not going to last. It only started in 1960, and it was like 500 students, and it was basically like hippie college. No grades, no credit hours, you know, individual assessments of, of how you did in each of your classes and that sort of thing. I had wanted to go to Stanford because my, my oldest sister's husband went there, and I applied, and I don't know even know whether I ever got a response. I got into Notre Dame. I think I just, I don't know why, I don't think I ever, and I remember thinking, that's going to be another four years of prep school. I don't want to do that. So I decided I want to go to Florida. So I did. So my parents and my youngest sister and I drove down to Florida. I got checked in, and because I was fluent in German from having been in Austria, I had a one-on-one tutorial with a German professor. And, you know, having been in boarding school, I was a great student. I could sit down and crunch the stuff out. And he gave me a novel that's kind of the... I don't know, the German equivalent of, like, War and Peace or whatever, The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. He said, yeah, we're going to read this (laughs) during the quarter. I remember looking at it and thinking, I can get through, like, three pages in an hour, and so that means I'm going to have to put in, like, three hours a day to get through this book by the end of the quarter. You know, it was it was gr- it was great in so many ways. On the other hand, you know, at times I thought, geez, I kind of wish I'd gone to regular college. Where, you know, I had to take other kind of classes because I, you know, could just take whatever I wanted.
0: Were you drinking during this time? Oh yeah,
2: yeah. What and did that s- look like? Smoking pot. It wasn't like I couldn't get out of my room. It's like you know, we drank on weekends and probably drank during the week too, but nothing out of the norm. No, I mean, there weren't any you know, sort
0: for... of consequences like waking up in jail with your hard contact still in.
2: No, no, I that didn't happen again. Another time, one night in my hometown, I got stopped by the cops twice drunk and they let me go both times
0: in the same night.
2: In the same night, you yeah.
0: lucky SOB.
2: No kidding, no kidding. And this, so then in college, that's when I first took LSD and I really, really, really loved it. And I really, I was smoking a lot of weed. I really, really, really loved weed. So what did
0: those do for you?
2: Weed was just like. Get to relax and, I, and again, I think kind of slow my brain down because my brain is usually running, going running, 800 running, miles running, an hour. running, running. Yeah. LSD, I think, was really helpful. I think I really gained some positive stuff from it. One was realizing that my thinking and my feelings didn't necessarily have to be in lockstep. They didn't have to go together. Because, you know, especially being an 18-year-old guy obsessed with sex, I remember realizing high on LSD, who cares about sex? This feels so great. You know, who cares? And to realize that that was even a possibility was mind-blowing to me. My thinking is going so fast, I can't even hold a thought long enough to say it out loud. But I enjoyed it. I never had, you know, a bad trip, as people say. But I remember thinking, if you had any deep self-doubts this would could pull you under you know and at the time i was like i got it made everything's cool you know life is good that kind of stuff yeah so i you know i did that and the first summer i came home and I had an internship with Hennepin County, and they had a volunteer probation officer program, and I worked in the office, uh, people that were managing it. And there was a woman there who was a probation officer from Vienna, Austria, who was there as an exchange exchange kind of program. And so during the summer, I talked to her, and I said, hey, I'm going to this experimental college where they encourage you to do off-campus stuff. If I came to Vienna, could you could I follow you around? and?" do a research project with you. And she said, probably, you know, let me talk to this right and talk talk to my boss when we get back. So I ended up doing that. So the next winter quarter, so it was been January to March of 71, I went and lived in Vienna by myself. It was really great because I didn't have anybody to speak English with. So when I got there, and Vienna has a dialect that's different even from where I was in boarding school 40 miles away, very distinct dialect. And so I couldn't understand anybody the first week or two. And then I got To the point where you don't have to translate in your head and, you know, I dream in German and that kind of stuff. So that was a a really great experience in many ways. Came back, it was spring break when I got back, and then I hitchhiked to New York and from New York to Michigan and had all these, you know, great experiences and stuff that, that were a lot of fun. My, would have been my senior year, second year, anyway, I came back, I was back in Minnesota for a year with another internship kind of job, and then went back in my senior year in college, so 73 to 74. I was home at Christmas, my dad had a stroke. He'd been pretty sick. Uh, Before that, he had surgery on his aorta and he never really recovered from it. But at Christmas time, he had a stroke. And I remember talking to the doctor saying, well, should I go back to college or is he going to die or, you know, what should I do? And he said, no, I'm pretty sure he's going to recover, you know. So, yeah, go on back to school. So I went back to school and then after a few weeks, one of my sisters called me and said, I think dad's dying. Mom doesn't want to tell us. My mom had started drinking again at this point. In fact, the doctor, when he was talking to her when my dad was dying in the hospital, and he'd call her at night, and she'd be drunk. And I noticed that from time to time, too. But anyway, came back, and my dad lingered for a couple of weeks and then died at the end of January that year. And then I went back to school and finished, and then really felt like I needed to be home because my mom was there and my dad was dead. Stuck around. I didn't have a job or anything, so I signed up. At the University of Minnesota, my two best friends from college were both going and working on being doctors. I thought, well, I'm going to be a doctor, too. So I started taking science classes. Because of the internship jobs I'd had, an agency in Hennepin County had a job opening. And I got the job, and it was, what was it called? The Criminal Justice Council? So this is 1974. There were all the riots in the 68 and 67. After that, Congress passed what's called the Safe Streets Act. And so there was all this money for various kind of programs to reduce crime and help kids and this, that, and the other thing. So the agency I was working for was like the county screening office for applications that came in for these grants and so on. So I started in the fall. The date when they handed out the money was February or March, something like that. After that, it was dead. I mean, there was literally, I mean, I remember asking my boss, What should I do? And he said, well, why don't you, you know, rearrange the bookcase, I think. That drove me nuts because I felt like I'm not doing anything. And I remember one of the things I did was put a clock radio on the far side of my room and put it on a country music station so it'd make me get up out of bed and turn it (laughs) off. (laughs) Because I didn't like the country music so... I quit the job and I remember thinking, you know, people always said, well, you're going to be a lawyer like your dad. And I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. What I got to do something. mentioned this before we started. One of the things that happened too was I'd love smoking weed up until about then. But once I got out of college, I remember it hitting me and it's like, I'm out of college. I'm 22 years old. I have to do something important with my life right now. That anxiety gripped me so much that whenever I smoked pot, it just kicked that anxiety up and I couldn't enjoy it anymore. I still kept drinking. But I I really didn't enjoy smoking pot anymore after that. Anyway, so I quit the job, and so I applied to law schools, and I got into um, William Mitchell and Hamlin, who were separate back then. And so I got into law school at Hamlin and went to law school. (laughs) So, oh, man. You know, and again, my mom paid for it, and I was bouncing around and... Did that you know that I'd always been a great student, in fact, I, you know I've said, and I think it's really true. if I would have gone to law school after tenth grade, I would have done better than I did after finishing college. <laughs> you know in the first semester at the end of the first semester, I was like, holy crap, you know it's like I got like C's and it's like, this is not how I do things. this is not me. I knuckled down a lot more, got through that, and I really dug law school. I love that kind of thinking, and I remember the professor saying you got to learn how to think like a lawyer, and I remember realizing I think I've already got that from hearing my dad talk about legal stuff, you know, the idea of kind of looking at both sides and imagining what's the other side going to say. And if, if I were going to argue against myself, how would I do that? How would I construct that argument, that kind of thing? So I really dug that. And, you know, and at the same time, it was like, I'm a rebel, and I'm going to do this all on my own. And I don't need any help from anybody. And so I sublet an office from some guys I'd done some some lawyers I'd done some work with and started my own office and I was there about a year and a half and I'm pretty sure it ultimately I probably spent more money than I made part of it you know looking back I know part of it was I was so you know for instance when I started driving I could just drive into the gas station fill the car up and say charge it in my mind the money is just gonna be there don't worry about it and it'll come because I'm I'm great and I'm wonderful and it's gonna come and it didn't (laughs) And then my cousin was still working for what had been my dad's law firm and invited me to come and work for them. And so I worked for them for a pitiful amount of money. The depressive stuff really kicked in. And I started there in the fall of 79. And in 1980, I remember I went to a you know some trial lawyer seminar in Reno. And I remember thinking, well, this is going to give me that edge so I can actually get out and do really succeed at this. And it didn't work. And I remember really struggling with it and thinking what's going on here you know i you know i can do anything i can do anything i decide to do i can make myself do whatever i want to do why can't i do this and i remember thinking at one point well if i really wanted to do this i could i'd do it and i'm not doing it so maybe i don't want to in the meantime i got sober in june of 1981 i'd been drinking and carrying on and drinking and carrying on I blacked out regularly. I threw up pretty regularly. I remember after I quit drinking about a year and a half later, I got the flu or something and I threw up and I went, wow, I haven't thrown up since I quit drinking. And there were a series of events that got me ready to quit, that set me up to quit. And one of them was I was still drunk on a Sunday morning or something, or maybe a Monday morning even, and a client called me and wanted some advice, called me at home and I was talking to him. And I remember after that going, that was one of the rules was was, it wasn't going to affect my legal work. And that, that got to me, like broke through my bullshit wall. Then the next one was my boss at the law firm settled some big case and he goes, Hey, let's go out for a beer. So we went to TGI Fridays on 394 had a drink and there was somebody sitting across the bar and we started chit chatting and he said, I'm buying. And so we're drinking scotches. My buddy, Larry, I'd promised I was going to go have dinner with him and I had food in the car. And so anyway, and I was supposed to be there at 7.30 7.30 or whatever. And so all of a sudden I realized, oh, wow, it's quarter to eight. So I ran, I got to the payphone, I called him. I said, hey, Larry, I'm sorry I'm late. And he goes, hey, you want to know what? I'm in the middle of something. Why don't you give me another hour and then come on over there? And I said, great. So I went back and blacked out and never made it there. In the, in the course of that, however, one of the things that was kind of funny for a drunken scene was when I first sat down, there was a woman sitting next to me smoking. And I said, can I bum a cigarette from you? And she gave me one. And then later on, when I was really drunk, I looked over, and she wasn't there, but her cigarette pack was still there. So I took a cigarette out of it, and her girlfriend, who was on the next seat, said, What the fuck do you think you're doing? You don't want you to buy your own goddamn cigarettes. And, I'm like, and I remember looking at her and thinking, I'm too drunk to respond. She kept talking at me. I couldn't talk. I think she was starting to get sympathetic, and then I went, Oh, my God, she's hitting on me, and I'm still too drunk to talk. And then I was blacked out. And then I remember I came to, when the lights came on at closing time. My boss was there with some woman on his lap. And I went out, threw up in the parking lot, and I got home, and my, I was living with my girlfriend, and she said, God, Larry called me. What the hell happened to you? Where were you? You know, blah, 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 blah. I freaked everybody out. That was the first time. I mean, that was a consequence of a kind that i never really had before. You know, I was like, yeah, I was drunk, big deal, you know, blah, blah. But I scared people, I guess.
0: Did you ever have other people in your life addressing you about the severity of your drinking?
2: No, no. No one? No.
0: Not a sister?
2: No. No. You know, it's interesting too, and I, and I say this, and I, I need to think through it, but I think it's right. Nobody I knew at the time thought I needed to quit drinking when I did. Why do you think that is? Because I look good. I knew how to look good.
0: Do you think they knew?
2: No. No. I mean, they said later. Said, hey, what's said like a true alcoholic. What, no, well, could be. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, my girlfriend, who I'd lived with for three or four years at that point, said, you know, you really need to... What's the big deal? Yeah, you get in trouble. You know, you... Do it too much. Go too far once in a while. What's the big deal? How? I, and then so anyway, these events led up to. So the last one was like in March. And I went to a, a guy I knew from law school. Said, "Hey, you going to so and so's wedding?" And I said, "Well, no, I don't know him that well. I wasn't invited." And He goes, "Well, you got to come to the stag party." So I went to the stag party, you know. And it was like, and I said, and I decided this many, many times before I quit drinking. I'm going to have two and get home early, so I'm not a wreck tomorrow, and so on and so forth. And so I was going to this stag party with all these guys who went to law school with, and I'm like, I'm not going to be drunk and obnoxious. I'm going to have a couple of beers and be polite and go home. Well, you know, stayed too late, got too drunk. That cracked through my bullshit barrier. That wasn't it. So then another couple of months later, so we are getting toward June, an old buddy of mine, a friend of a friend, came into my law office and was asking me about some real estate thing or something. And he said, hey, I'm going to have this big party party next month, whatever. I'm going to have a boat on Lake Minnetonka and it's going to be all these girls and it's going to be great. And he said, hey, where's Steve? And Steve was my best drinking and using buddy. And I said, you know, I haven't t- seen him in a while. I don't know what's going on with him. And so I called him up on the spot and I said, hey, Steve, Pat's here and he's going to have this big party, man. You got to be there. And he said, ah, uh, I can't make it. I said, what, are you having brain surgery? You know, I mean, what, what could keep you from this? And he goes, Uh, don't tell anybody, but I just got out of treatment. And I went, okay. And so I hung up and said, yeah, I'll have to call him back. You know, so then as soon as Pat left, I called him back. I said, Steve, what the hell? And he said, well, he got in girlfriend trouble and he worked. Well, anyway, we went to the employee assistance people where he worked and they said, you know, do you drink and use drugs? And he said, well, yeah. And they said, well, you have to go to treatment. So he went to treatment. The way I think of it is his saying that gave me permission. And I said, well, how'd you do that? And he said, well, they told me to call this place, and they referred me to this treatment center. And so I said, well, what was the name of the place? And so he told me, and, he, and I called the place, and they said, yeah. And so they referred me to, it was a Hazelden outpatient program that was in the Volunteers of America building at 15th and Nicolet. And so I went there, met with the counselor, and I remember sitting there waiting to go in for my first meeting with the counselor before I even started, and there was some woman sitting there, and she was like 40s, 50s, and I was 20, what, 29. She said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to check out and see what I can get some help. And she goes, what the hell are you talking about? You know, you look like you're a professional athlete or something. And I'm just thinking, where are you? What planet are you from, lady? But I thought, yeah, see, what's the problem? What's the real problem? But anyway, so I went in and talked to the counselor. And during the course of the conversation, so we go through the whole thing and we get done. And he says, yeah, you know. Sounds like you got a problem. I said, Okay. I don't know if you can make it an outpatient. You might have to go to inpatient. I was like, hey, I can't do that. I'm a busy guy. And he goes, No. Um, you know, he said, Well, you know, tell you what, I'll give you a week in outpatient, see how it goes. You know, but it might have to refer you to inpatient. I'm like, Yeah, right. I said, Okay, so uh, you know, when do you want me to start? And he goes, Tonight. I said, I can't start tonight, I have a softball game. <laughs> he went, No, tonight. So I called the softball guy and said, Not coming. Anyway, I started, so I went through the outpatient program. Looking back on it, you know, and and the other thing too is, and I really think this was in the back of my mind, was what I was really afraid of was that at the end of the conversation, he was going to say, you're not an alcoholic. You're just fucked up. We can't help you. (laughs) But I went through the outpatient program, and I think people have asked me how he stayed sober. I said, I know people that have worked at it a lot harder than me that haven't succeeded, but I think, you know, from my own From my internal interpretation, it was so not fun the last couple of years I drank that I didn't struggle a lot with cravings or or urges to relapse or any of that kind of stuff. And I remember realizing that when I would start drinking after the first one or two, I'd go like, oh, God, where is this going to end up? You know, I mean, recently I, I was into a TV show or something, and one of the characters says, hey, yeah, let's meet for drinks. And it just hit me, and I thought, what he means is let's meet at five we'll have one or two drinks, then we'll go home and have dinner and go on about our normal days to me, once we're going to meet at five and have drinks, that means the rest of the night the rest of the night is going to continue, and where am I going to end up, and what do I have to do so that I can make it through that and not get in trouble the next day? I never knew when it was, where it was going to go once I started, and I think knowing that was dug into my brain made it easier for me not to get caught up in cravings or you know, magical thinking about it was going to be okay for me to drink again. Do you Um,
0: remember when you actually acknowledged that once you have one, you don't know where you're going to end up?
2: Yeah. When was that about? It was at least a year before I quit, if not more. And at that
0: point, did you think you were an alcoholic?
2: You know, I think in many ways I've always thought I was an alcoholic because I never pretended to want to drink socially. It was always like, let's get wasted and be obnoxious was basically it a badge of honor, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
0: Do you think that came from your parents openly drinking?
2: I think it was kind of in response to or in, you know, um, defiance of my parents pretending they weren't alcoholic. And you were
0: going to show everyone that you were. Exactly. And Um, that you didn't care. There you go.
2: Yep, 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 yeah.
0: All right. We're going to take a little break, Tim. Okay. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the rest of the story. Okay. how you got some help. Great. Come on back next week for part two of Tim G. But for now, in keeping authentic on authentic, we have to pay credit where credit is due. The musical stylings you heard on today's program. To open the show, you always hear (laughs) Mad Madness by Muse. And then we're gonna change accents so we can get into Tim's tunes. The first pick by Tim is going to be You Got the Love by Shaka Khan and Rufus. Remember, be good to yourselves, it is ever so important.
1: Right.